Amen. I invite you to open your Bible with me to uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second letter, and we'll read there in just a few moments. Um, we are truly blessed to be, to live in a place where we have freedom, uh, freedom to worship, free, freedom to believe, to share our faith, and uh, we are certainly blessed to uh, uh, for God's grace that he demonstrated us towards us in Christ Jesus, really setting us free for eternity. Four weeks ago, I began a series entitled Life in the Spirit, and the purpose for beginning this series was to strengthen our relationship with Christ by understanding more about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and his role in your life and in mine. I heard one, someone say not long ago, about us as Baptists, especially as Southern Baptists, he said, Pastor Charlie, I think we've almost uh, redefined the Trinity. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we've put great emphasis on God the Father, and we put great emphasis on Jesus the Son, but instead of the Holy Spirit, it seems like we're placing more and more emphasis on the Bible. And I thought about what he was saying, thus God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the written word, and I'm not so sure if he's not true to some degree that we are missing out on the transforming presence and power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in a dry and lifeless Christian life, dry and lifeless Christian congregations, and so the aim for this series is to know him and to be open to his presence and to his power and leadership in our lives. And so this morning from his word as we worship, we want to thank God for our freedoms. What a gift, but even so, it's more appropriate that we worship and give God's thanks for an even greater freedom that we have through the gospel. We're free from death, free from the fear of death, and free to live spirit-filled, abundant lives. Read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. If the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels for if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in, re in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. 
Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we're asking for your help. As we reflect upon the freedom that we've come to experience through the gospel, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide us and teach us today. That you would lead us and give us understanding from your word about the glorious ministry that you want to have in our lives and in our church. So give us understanding, ears to hear, and wills to respond in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Upon first reading of this text, uh, it can seem a bit confusing. Any of you, when you first read it, kind of sense that a little, little bit confusing? I would say as we read the Bible, while there are some difficult texts to understand, most of the time the challenge is not for us to understand what the Bible is saying, but the greater challenge is for us to believe what it says. An old song by Nicole Norderman says, Take me back to the time when I was eight or nine when I first believed. When Jesus walked on the waters blue, and if he would help me, I could too, if I just believed. Help me believe because I don't want to miss any miracles. Maybe I'd see much better by closing my eyes, and I would shed this grown-up skin that I'm in to touch an angel's wing and would be free. So, Lord, help me to believe. And so I think the greater challenge for us, generally speaking, from God's Word is to believe what He says and to appropriate it by faith in our lives. But this certainly is a text that can be a little challenging to understand. And so I want to walk through this with you. And first, just really kind of two aims to go through it, to understand it. Paul is the writer here writing to the church at Corinth. And there's a point to what he's saying. There's a specific message And so for our purposes, I want us to look at that and see what that purpose, what that message was. And then second, after finding clarity on what Paul is trying to convey from the text, I want us to consider what that message has to do with us. What is the application for what we've read to our lives? And so with your Bible's open, let's go through this together, trusting that God would speak. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open. I would also encourage you to bring your Bible with you. Um, Paul tells Timothy to uh, present himself as a workman before God who rightly divides the truth. And so you and I as believers, as followers of Jesus, the, the Bible is the main tool that he's given to us to reveal himself to us. And so we want to be students of the word. So I want to encourage you to always bring your Bible with you this morning as we minister the word. So let's look at this text. There's two sections. First, in this verses 7 through 16, Paul is looking back into the past. 
Referring back, much like we did through this medley today, looking back to the past, to our history as a nation, Paul is looking back to the history of the Israel nation, to Old Testament history. And then after he looks to the past, he's going to contrast that, which is the second major section in the text, with the present reality of the church at Corinth. His methodology, his reason for doing so is to provide instruction to help them uh, learn to think a certain way from what he's saying. And so thinking with the expectation that the way we think affects the way we behave and ultimately to alter our lifestyles. Romans 15.4 states that whatever things were written before are in the past were written for our instruction that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might find hope. And so let's look at this first major section, starting at verse 17. Paul is referring to the past, back to something old, to something familiar for the purpose of teaching them something new that was less familiar, which is revealed in verse 8. Look at that, verse 8, if you have your Bible, he's wanting them to understand more and more about this. And that's a great verse about the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what is the old? What is the familiar that they understood that he's referring to? Well, look at verse 7. In verse 7, he says the old is the ministry of death. You see that? The ministry of death. Not just the ministry of death, but he says the glorious ministry of the death. How many when you think about death think it's glorious? Think about the old glorious ministry of death. And then in verse 9, he also adds, referring back to this, as the ministry of condemnation. And he also says in verse 9 that had some glory to it. The glorious ministry of death, the the glory of the ministry of condemnation. So I invite you to consider with me, what is he talking about? How can this glorious ministry of death, this this glory, uh, this ministry of condemnation, what is Paul referring to? Well, this old ministry, that which he's referring back to, this ministry of death and this ministry of condemnation that had some glory to it, the short answer, he's referring back to the Old Testament ministry of the law, of the law. If you remember in the Old Testament, God gave his law. He gave his law to Moses and the people of God 50 days after they were delivered out of slavery from Egypt. If you remember in the book of Exodus, God calls Moses to come up on Mount Sinai Moses, come up into my presence. And while he was there, God began to give Moses and the children of Israel his law. And he, Moses comes down with some tablets of stone, each stone engraved with God's laws. We know them as the Ten Commandments. They're moral laws. And they were laws for God's people to learn. And not only to learn, but to obey, governing their lifestyles and guiding them in their relationship with God. Those laws were very purposeful because they were intended to accomplish several things. First of all, God gave his his law to first to reveal who he is. 
Think about the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments reveal to you and I truths about God, truths about his nature and his attributes. For example, he's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He's righteous and just and loving. All of that is revealed in the Ten Commandments. And therefore, he demands for you and I to please him by obeying, by keeping his laws. And so the law reveals God to us. Second, the laws were also intended to produce condemnation. Condemnation. In other words, the laws of God, they minister to us, they serve us as a way of condemning us. Now, that may not sound, what? Doesn't sound too great. God gave his law to reveal himself to us, and God gives his law to condemn us. If you think about this, if you and I leave today and we get in our cars or trucks and we drive down this highway and there is a speed limit posted that says 35, 35 miles per hour and we step it up to 45 miles per hour, then you and I know that we have broken the law. We've exceeded the speed limit, we're, and we're guilty. We've broken the law. Well, the law, that sign, is what reveals to us what the limit is. And when we exceed it, we know we've broken the law. And so God gives his laws to us in order to reveal sin to us, to help, in a way, to condemn us. Help us to realize that we're sinners. The point of the law reveals God, and it reveals his righteousness. The law reveals to us what God expects from us. And what he expects from us is really impossible for us to keep, so the law, in a way, condemns us. Let me ask you a question to that point. Have you ever tried and determined in your life that you were going to be good? Anybody ever do that? I'm going to be good. I'm not going to do these sinful things anymore. I'm going to be good and please God with my life. And I'm going to do everything that God says. I'm going to be good. I'm going to keep his laws. Well, any of you like me ever run that experiment? How'd that turn out for you? Doesn't turn out too well. Because we realize that we're sinners. The law condemns us. The fact is, none of us can keep God's laws. And the Bible says if we break one law, just one aspect of the law, then it says we're guilty. We are sinners. You know Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned. All have sinned and failed to bring God glory. Romans 6, 23, and the condemnation of our sin, the wages, the consequences of sin is death. This is what Paul means when he's referring back to the law, serving as a ministry of condemnation and ultimately a ministry of death. Look at your Bible again. Look at verse 19, or verse 9, I'm sorry. Verse 9 says, the ministry of condemnation had glory. He says in verse 7, the ministry of death was glorious. It had some glory because it revealed God and it pointed us to God. And so the law of God reveals 
to us who God is, and it also condemns us. But it does more. Third, while the ministry of the law had some glory, Paul says in this text that the glory of the law is fading, was fading. Look at verse 10 and 11. He says the old was passing away. The glory of the old was nothing compared to what was coming, he says. He says this new ministry that's coming excels. It exceeds the old, and it is far more glorious, far more glorious. And then Paul provides a demonstration. He kind of illustrates it, and he says, If you want to understand how much more glorious this new ministry is that brings life compared to the old ministry that condemns and brings death, even though there was glory in it, this new ministry, if you want to understand, he said, I want you to consider Moses' face. Moses' face. In verses 13 through 16, He refers to this, and if you go back and read about Moses going up onto Mount Sinai, after he was in the presence of God, it changed his face. Do you remember? There was a glory that radiated from his face. The Bible refers to it as the Shekinah, glory of God, meaning his face after he was in the presence of God, his face physically radiated the light and the brilliance of being with God. In other words, his face reflected God's glory. Let me read a couple of verses with you, uh, for you very quickly. They're found in Exodus chapter 34, but listen to what God's word says about Moses' experience. Verse 20, and it was so When Moses came down from Mount Sinai and two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with God. So when Aaron and the children of Israel saw Moses Behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. And it goes on in verse 33, And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel whatever he had been commanded. And whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, that Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with God. Isn't that a great, great description? Moses. The Bible says his His uh, face radiated this glory from being in God's perfect presence. It was on his face, but the text also conveys that the glory from his face after time being away from the presence of God would begin to fade. 
it would begin to dim. And so verse 13, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says and describes him putting on a veil, a mask, if you will, so God's people could not look at that which was fading, that which was fading. So the glory of the law is the point of all of this. The glory of the law was temporary. And the reason was because the law was intended to point us to a new ministry, a ministry that was far greater and far more glorious. Thus the contrast. The old ministry of the law of condemnation and death, yes, it had some glory to it. However, it was ending. It was fading. It was passing away. Pointing us to what Paul says in verse 8, to the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not written on tablets of stone, but God's laws written, engraved where? We're law, God's law. You, you and I are followers of Christ. We're Hillcrest Baptist Church, disciples of Jesus. Where are the laws of God engraved today? On tablets of stone? No. The laws of God, because, and through the work, the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, those laws are engraved, they're inscribed upon our hearts. They're within us. They're within us. God's law, the old law, demanded, required obedience. But the Holy Spirit and this law that he engraves upon our hearts produces, produces obedience. Any person, any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, any disciple, any follower of Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit is going to experience change if they're really saved. And the Holy Spirit will begin to work in the heart, in the mind, in the inner being of the believer where there's, he begins to produce desire and hunger and thirst for the Lord and to live for him. And to, and to obey him and to please him and to honor him and to exalt Jesus. The old ministry had some glory, but it was nothing compared to the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this to the Galatians. He says the law, the law was a tutor. It was a guardian, something or someone that is only temporary. How many of you watched the movie, The Blind Side? Any of you watched that movie? That's a great movie. Story, true life story about Michael Orr, a poor kid taken in by a family, the Tuies, to give, to, to receive a better life. And that story ends up with him being one of the top draft picks in the NFL draft. I think he played at Ole Miss, right? And in one scene of the movie, do you remember that the Tuies hire a tutor? They hire Mrs. Sue to help Michael temporarily on his tests, 
to get his grades up, to be academically eligible to receive a scholarship. Miss Sue was a tutor. She was a garden guardian, but she was not permanent. Not permanent. That's a tutor. That's a guardian. That's what Paul is saying about the law. The law was temporary. It was a guardian. It was a tutor preparing us, pointing us to something greater. To the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life. Paul is saying that was the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to prepare us, church, to point us to to the new ministry of the Spirit that is glorious and a ministry that is not fading, that is not diminishing, but one is becoming more and more glorious. He actually says in the text, from glory to glory to glory, increasing glory, a ministry that is permanent, it's not temporary, which we understand to be what? The ministry of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ. The salvation is in him, not through our works, not through us keeping the law, not through us thinking, God, if, I just, if I'm just better, if I do better, if I perform better, then you'll love me more and you'll hear my prayers more and do this for me and do that for me. If I'm just better, if I make myself better, No, the gospel flies in the face of that. You and I do not make ourselves better, but when we're born again and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, he begins to take control. He makes us better. He produces new life, new desires and and changes in us. I'm not anyone's judge, nor are you. I can't really, nor can you know what's going on in some, inside someone's heart and what all of their motives are. Now, we certainly can judge behavior, right? We certainly can judge behavior, and we should judge behavior. Parents, example of that, you, you definitely watch the actions of your kids, your young people, and you judge their behavior, but motives, we really don't know everything that's going on inside a person. But I can tell you this. There's a burden on my heart, and I have serious concerns as a pastor for people in the congregation who are never changing, who are never growing in Christ, who have no hunger and thirst for God and do not have a passion for Him. It troubles me. It concerns me deeply. And you wonder, do they really know Jesus? Are they really saved or are they just church broke? Just church broke. They go to church because it's the right thing to do and that's what they were raised to do and they believe the Bible because you're supposed to believe the Bible and they're familiar with the Bible, but do they really know Jesus Christ? Have they really experienced this glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit in and upon their hearts and their lives? It concerns me. It concerns me. 
Our salvation is through the grace and by the mercy of God, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, one who kept the law on our behalf, one who did something we could never do. And when we place our faith and trust in him, there's a great exchange and all of our sin is, falls upon him and all of his righteousness, which he talks about, is imputed to us in our account. And he indwells us by the Holy Spirit and gives us new life. It's a glorious ministry. And then let me close. Why is it glorious? What's so glorious about the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me share with you a few things. He says, first of all, this ministry excels in glory. And so let's just in, in closing, let me just share with you very quickly a few things that the Holy Spirit does in our lives and wants to do in our lives. First, the Holy Spirit is how we come to know Jesus. He brings us to Jesus. Verse 14 talks about a veil being removed. Well, the previous messages that we have been seeing about the person and work of the Holy Spirit is that we are sinners, we're dead in our sins, we're without hope, none of us saves ourselves, none of us can make ourselves righteous before God, but the Spirit of God, as you and I hear the, the gospel, the good news, he speaks and convicts and draws, and he, if you will, he removes the veil. The blinders come off and we begin to see and understand God and his love for us and his desire for us to know him. And so the Holy Spirit brings us to Jesus. He removes the veil. Second, the Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus in our lives. Jesus said in John 16, 14, that when the Spirit comes and he indwells us, he will bring me glory. Bring me glory. It simply means in your life and my life as a follower of Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit working in us to exalt Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Would you, would you say that the Holy Spirit is exalting Jesus on a daily basis in your life? Or would you say the flesh is wanting to exalt you every day in life? flesh will always want attention. The flesh will always want recognition. The flesh always wants praise. To the contrary, the Spirit will always deflect, draw attention from us, and will always work to draw attention to Jesus, to exalt Him. Because you and I understand any good thing in me, any good thing in you, is simply because of God and because of the grace and the mercy of Christ Jesus. Third, the Holy Spirit in verse 12 of the text says he gives us hope or confidence before God. Hope and confidence. Well, how does he do that? Well, through the word. Produces boldness, confidence to witness. And he talks about our, our speech. Such confidence and boldness and speaking comes from the Holy Spirit. Prodiness. You know how that works. You're in a conversation with someone and you have a thought about something you should say, would be good for you to say, that's the Holy Spirit prompting you, leading you, bringing thoughts to your mind for you to share. Uh, there's been times where uh, I've been in conversations with people and I felt like I quenched the Spirit. I didn't say some things I should have said. And then there's other times after the conversation, I'm, I marvel, I can't believe what I said. It was really good. And I knew it came from the Lord came from God's Spirit. And so 
He's always working to try to guide us in our speech and boldness. Fourth, the Holy Spirit, wherever the Spirit is, verse 14 says, He will produce liberty and freedom in us. Let me ask you this question. Before you came to Christ, or maybe you've said this, thought this at one time in your life, or maybe you've heard, ever even heard other people say things like this, well, I don't ever want to be a Christian. I don't want to give my life to Christ. I don't want to become a church guy, a church girl, because you can't have any fun. You Christians can't do all this stuff. You can't do that, and, and you got to follow all these rules, and I, I don't, that doesn't sound too good to me. I don't, I don't want to be a Christian. You know what the Bible, you know how the Bible counters that? The Bible says that, that thinking, that mindset is pretty flawed because you know those who are in bondage. Who are those, the Bible says, are really in bondage? Those who don't know Christ. They're in bondage. They're in slavery to their sin, ultimately leading to death, and they don't even see it. They don't even realize it in many cases. Oh, the Holy Spirit produces liberty. He says, where the Spirit is, there's liberty, there's freedom. Freedom, hope that we, you and I can overcome sin and defeat some sinful things in our lives and continue to grow in Christ. We're free from ceremonial laws. Listen, Jesus didn't come to destroy the moral law. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount, but all of the ceremonial laws of days and weeks and certain days and holidays and rituals and free from that stuff, free from all of that, and the Spirit begins to free us from fear, free us from the fear of death and bondage of sin. There's, free, there's liberty in the Spirit producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and meekness and self-control. There's liberty there. The Spirit of God working in us. Fifth, the Spirit of God, verse 18 says, works to transform us into what? You ever see those little transformer toys? My son used to want transformers, and so you go to the store and you buy this little package and had a toy in it, and it looked like a person, and then you took it out of the package, you'd start folding it and move around, and it'd turn into a truck or a ship or something. It was a transformer. Do you know the Holy Spirit is working in you, in me, in us as a church, as a family, to transform us into what? into the image of Christ, into the image of Jesus, transformed into the image of Christ. He says from glory to glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit works in us to cause us to reflect Jesus more and more, where you and I become image bearers of Jesus. Image bearers. Moses, or God made Adam and Eve in his image. He made us in his image. And now you and I are to be image bearers of Jesus. This process of change and transformation is known biblically as sanctification, where he begins to set us apart. 2 Thessalonians chapter 4 makes it clear, it is God's will for all of us to be sanctified, to be living pure and holy lives before God. Because our lives are set apart for him. 
There's certain things in this life, in this world, that are off limits to a Christian. They're off limits because we're set apart for Jesus. Off limits. Hillcrest, may the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit change us. May change us. May he continue to change us from glory to glory to glory. I pray that he changes us as a church family. And he starts with me individually. And he changes us, transforming us where we exalt Jesus and, and producing greater liberty and producing the fruit of all, the spirit that, that he produces in us from glory to glory. This morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And if the Holy Spirit has removed the veil for you, the blinders have come off and you've come to a place in your life where you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus and you know you're a Christian, then we invite you to come to the table, to the Lord's table. We come to the Lord's table as a church family certainly as an individual, but all of us collectively. This is something we do as the church, as the body of Christ, as an expression of our unity and our oneness in Christ. We understand that Jesus sacrificed his body, suffered for us. He shed his blood on the cross so that we might have our sins forgiven indwells us through the Holy Spirit, producing glory in and through our lives and in and through our church. And so I want to ask our deacons to come, musicians to come, and invite you to come to the table. And after we've received the, the bread and the cup, we'll take this together as an expression of our unity in the gospel. And so you come this morning.